<clears throat> Turn, please, to Philippians in chapter 4. I want to begin reading really with verse 4. Philippians 4, 4 through 9, please. And just for those of you who keep time, I'll be going till 10 after. Just so you know. Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, we pray now as we come to your word that you would grant to us grace to hear, to listen, to receive. Father, that we would understand that this word is coming towards us from you, that you have intentions for it, that you've initiated this whole morning, that you have designs and desires upon us, upon our minds, our hearts, all that we think and all that we do. So I pray, Father, that your designs for us would be achieved, would be met. And please work in us that which is well-pleasing in your sight, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians chapter 4, <clears throat> verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything but... In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've heard and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Uh, last week we took up those verses about praying and receiving peace. The apostle says that we're not to be anxious about anything. We realize that, that out of love we have concern. But he says that we're not to be anxious. That is, we're not to be thinking of things outside of the realm of God. When we begin to think that we're in charge or that there's nothing that can really help us, that it all depends upon us, uh, then... Uh, we become anxious. And he says, don't be anxious. Rather than be anxious, here's the antidote, which is to pray. He said, pray with thanksgiving, that is reflecting upon all that you know that is true about God and his goodness to you already and the goodness that he has promised and the goodness, therefore, that you expect. <clears throat> so pray with thanksgiving and let all of your petitions be made known to God. And then he said, and <clears throat> the peace of God, which is inexplicable, which surpasses our understanding, he says, will guard your hearts and your minds, precisely what needs to be guarded in times of anxiety, that our minds, so our imaginations don't run wild on us, and that our hearts, that is to say, that our affections and emotions aren't so impacted that we become anxious. And so he says, God himself, the God, of, the God himself will put his peace around us as a guard upon our hearts and our minds. That raised the question or at least the comment, which, was, which would be this, I've prayed and prayed, but I'm still anxious. Now what? Well, let me just say a couple of things. Number one, it doesn't mean to stop praying, because God is faithful, and we take him at his word, and by faith, continue to obey him, continue to pray. If he says pray, we pray. However, if you are like me, when I come to that point of saying, I've prayed and prayed, and I'm still anxious, it may well be that I have not yet prayed like I think I've prayed. I remember when I was in graduate school, people would ask me, have you read the article that was assigned? And I would say yes. 
What that meant was I Xeroxed it. I had it in my possession. I meant to read it. Sometimes I think when we say we've really prayed, I wonder. Because I know there are times when I say, I've really prayed, and then I've thought back, when exactly? And how exactly? And about what exactly? But there still can be the case when we've prayed and prayed really, and still are anxious. And that's when I said last Sunday that that passage about praying and receiving peace isn't the only thing that the Bible says about peace. Because this passage goes on. And it says, not only are you to pray, but it says now you must think in a particular way and you must act in a particular way. And then the promise is that the God of peace will be with you. Now, this thinking and doing isn't in opposition to our praying, but consistent with it. That is, that we're to, to, to think and do consistent with our praying. And the promise then is that the God of peace will be with us. Because you see, peace has at least three dimensions. There's the dimension of our peace with God. There's our dimension of peace with each other. And there's this dimension of peace within, that is, no anxiety. So there's this dimension of peace with God, peace with each other, and peace within. Now, we know that we need peace with God because inherently we haven't got it. In fact, the Bible is very explicit about our relationship with God outside of Christ. And it says that according to God, we are his enemies. And according to us, we're hostile towards him. That does not make for a friendly relationship. We're his enemies because we're in rebellion against him. And Romans 5.10 says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And it says that we were then still his enemies. That is, he viewed us as being against him. And thus his wrath was aimed towards us. As Paul writes in Ephesians 2, that by nature we're objects of his wrath. Because he considered, considers us to be, when we're apart from Christ, he considered, considers us to be his enemies. You don't aim your wrath at your friends, only at your enemies. And so you can see the difficulty, you can see the lack of peace that we have with God, rather that he has with us. But also, at the same time, we're consistent with God in the sense that, Romans chapter 8 says, our minds... The natural mind, the sinful mind, is hostile towards God. We don't like him. And thus, there's hostility from our end to God as well. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 21 says that we are alienated from God in our minds. That is, that we view him as our enemy. Now, that can take the, that can take the form from our perspective all the way from apathy towards God to open hostility to God, but it's all the same. Some people say, I'm not really upset with God. I never think about him. I never honor him. Ah, that's being an enmity with God. Why would you be apathetic towards God? Whereas others sort of aren't apathetic towards God. They say, no, I'm a very spiritual person. I'm seeking God all the time. 
but it's a God of their own choosing. It's a God of their own understanding. It's a God of their own making. And so they create a God in their own image. That may be true for some here, that you sort of hold God at arm's length by attending a church. And you don't allow the scripture to inform your understanding of God. You've already got that. You're willing to put up with us. But that's being at enmity with God. All the way to people who are openly hostile towards him. And so you see there's no peace between human beings and God. Except when Christ makes that peace. He is our peace. Christ settles the hostility that God has with us on the cross. He settles that hostility by taking the wrath of God upon himself, by dying in our stead. And so the case against us in heaven, for those who believe, is gone. There's no longer a case against us. There's no hostility there. There's peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 Now that we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And not only does Christ deal with that enmity that God has with us, but he deals with the enmity that we have with God. Because part of the work of Christ is to send the Spirit of Christ to us to change our hearts. And when the Spirit of Christ comes upon us and changes our hearts, and we're born again, what happens is that our enmity against God dissolves. And our inclination is no longer to be either apathetic towards him or to hold him as our arm's length or to be hostile towards him, but rather to come to him. And so you see, Christ is our peace with God. Not only that, Christ brings peace among people. The scripture says that he's joined together even those who are in such opposite camps in the days of Jesus as Jews and Gentiles. But he brings us all together. And he does that in part by enabling each of us to see that God is our Father. So believers in Christ come together and any enmity between each other is that we both now have access to the same Father. We're brothers and sisters. And you see, we look at each other and we realize that none of us is better than the other. None of us is better. Only Christ is better. That old trite saying is true. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. When we're standing face to face with Christ and we look at each other, we realize we're all sinners and we all need Christ's grace. And thus, we no longer need to be prideful. We no longer need to be selfish. We no longer need to be covetous of one another. All those things which keep us apart. And so you see, Christ joins us together as well. But you see, Christ also is the very source, the very ground, the very foundation of the peace that we can have within ourselves. Because you see, once we know that God is for us and not against us, and we know that it's God who is for us. You see, you might think, I'm for you, and I can, and that'll help you occasionally. But you get in big trouble, I'm <laughs> not that much help. But if God is for you, who can be against you? If God, who is sovereign over all circumstances and all things, even the heart of the king is in the hands of God, 
if he is the one who is perfectly wise, and if he is the one who loves you and is for you, and you know that because peace has been made between the two of you, a real peace. It isn't just a hope peace, but a real peace, an objective peace, because you see what Christ has done. You see that it's a done deal, that his wrath is satisfied. Then you see, you know that God is for you. And once you know that, then you can have peace within, regardless of the circumstance, because then you know that this wise, powerful, loving God who is for you would not have allowed that circumstance to come into your life without it being best and without through his love that he will cause it to work in a way that brings great good. Even in the midst of that pain, you know that. And so you can have peace within in the midst of all of these circumstances. Even when you sin against him, you can have peace ultimately because as you confess your sin, you know that he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. It's justice when he forgives your sins because it's already been paid. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Thus the peace continues. Uh, This is illustrated in an Old Testament passage quite nicely uh, in Judges and chapter 6 in the life of a man named Gideon. Now, when Gideon, uh, we first come along Gideon, uh, he meets the angel of the Lord And when he meets the angel of the Lord, Gideon is threshing grain in the wine press. Now, you don't have to be a farmer or own a winery to know that you don't generally thresh grain in the wine press. Interestingly enough, what you do in a wine press is press grapes into wine. Hope I'm not going too fast for you. And Gideon, however, is rather odd for him to be threshing grain in the wine press But he was threshing grain in the wine press because he was afraid. Because he had no peace. He had no particular subjective peace with God. He didn't know God was for him. And thus he had to hide from his enemies, the Midianites. Because you see, at that point in time, Israel was in rebellion against God. And God had brought judgment upon them in the form of the enemies around them. And one of those enemies, the Midianites, would always wait to see when the Israelites were harvesting and threshing their grain. And what they would do then is come and steal it. Because they were more powerful. And so what the Israelites did was live in caves and find places like Gideon did in the wine press to thresh their grain in secret so the Midianites wouldn't find them and come and steal it. He had no peace. And so the angel of the Lord comes to, to Gideon and finally and says to Gideon, Gideon, I'm going to use you to go and, 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 and conquer the enemies. And Gideon says, you've got to be crazy. I'm weak. I'm of the weakest clan. Therefore, this can't be true. Give me a sign. The angel of the Lord gives him a sign. And when the angel of the Lord gives Gideon this sign, Gideon realizes who it really is. And in the Old Testament language, the angel of the Lord most often refers to God himself. A theophany. God himself being present in that place. And so in Judges in chapter 6, verse 22, the scripture reads, Then Gideon perceived that he was that he, this person he had been talking to, then Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for now I've seen the angel of the Lord face to face. And because he had, and because Gideon had no real peace with God, he was afraid. Verse 23, But the Lord said uh, to him, uh, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. 
See, Gideon thought if ever he came into contact with the angel of the Lord, he'd die because he had no peace with God. But the Lord said, no, 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 you won't die. God came to give him peace, to know that God was for him, and then he was able, therefore, to have peace and to bring peace. Verse 24 says this, Then Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is peace. And you see, the promise that we have from the apostle is that as we pray and as we think and as we do, then the God who is peace will be with us present with us. And when the Bible uses an expression like that where it gives a a modifier to God because you really don't have to say the God of peace or the God who is peace or the Lord our righteousness. You can say that but you don't need to because it's all implied in the word God or the word Lord. But when he singles that out he's saying this is really the characteristic of God that's going to be present with you in the midst of your circumstance. And so when he says, if you pray, the peace of God will be with you, will guard your hearts and your minds. When you think these kinds of thoughts, when you do these kinds of things, the God of peace will be with you. He's saying that's what, that's what God will bring at that moment in time. Peace to you. Now it makes a great deal of sense to us that, um, that when we pray that our praying will also be conjoined with or be consistent with things that we think and actions that we take because you see we're integrated persons we don't just sort of pray and that's it but we pray and we also think and do Um, we're integrated Uh, one thing is consistent with another A praying person who's praying in the context of anxiety, desiring peace, shouldn't be surprised that when his prayers are being answered, that his thoughts begin to change and that his actions begin to change because that's the way God works in us. When God says he's going to guard our hearts and minds with his peace, it shouldn't surprise us that he said, the way that I'm going to guard your mind is to have you think particular kinds of thoughts and put boundaries and discipline upon your thinking. That shouldn't surprise us when he says, here's the means through which I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you peace. I'm going to guard your mind. So think like this. Act like this. He's going to guard our hearts and minds, the very peace of God, to be present with us. We don't pray in a vacuum. Not only that, he says, I believe that it's impossible for us to have peace when our thoughts are still hostile towards him and even towards our surrounding. That's why he says you've got to pray with thanksgiving. You see, when you're praying with thanksgiving, you're not praying in a hostile manner towards God. And in order to not pray in a hostile manner towards God, you've got to be, have right thinking about the circumstance and about the situation in which you live. In which you live. And then he says, I want you to do certain things because notice in verse 8 he says, think about these things at the very end. And in verse 9 he says, practice these things, do these things. You see, God doesn't give us peace in the midst of our disobedience. Uh, A smoker can't have peace that he won't get lung cancer or heart disease if he prays. 
Because if he prays, God will say, well, if you want peace about that, I'll give you a hand here. Let me give you some wisdom. (laughs) Stop smoking. A liar can't get peace in living in the context of a lie and think, well, I've prayed about it, therefore they won't catch me. Though it's likely you will get caught if you prayed about it because God isn't going to allow you to live a lie. You see, a thief can't live in peace just because he prayed about it. And so we see that, that our actions need to be consistent with what we're praying. A person who's living in a sexually immoral situation can't live in peace because they've prayed about it. You see? God will bring you to repentance, that is, change your thinking and change your actions, and then peace will come. And so it shouldn't surprise us that peace brings with it doing and and thinking. And so let's take a look at these thinking and doing. When I was a kid, I remember in elementary school, we had these books called Think and Do Books. I hated them. Uh, Made me do the two things I never liked in school, thinking and doing. Um, But it was related, and of course it had to be that way. You had to think and then do, think and then do. That was the point. And so he says, think and then do. This is what he says. So notice what he says in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. In other words, this is what your thoughts are to be like. Now, I don't have time to take each one of them individually and give illustration and example of each one. And I think it's best that we don't necessarily because I think he wants to take it as a whole. That this is the kind of mind that you should have, you see. And as we look at these, they they look so lofty. They look so true and honorable and and right and and beautiful and and admirable. I guess those are the words, aren't they? I mean, it just sort of raises us up to this kind of level in thinking because, you see, we're often very, very judgmental people. We're often very, very critical people. And a couple of few months ago, Karen and I and my day off decided to get out of town, so we were in the Kansas City, and we went to the tour of homes that they do there in a variety, hundreds of homes you can walk through. And, well, to keep ourselves from coveting, we only go to those houses for about $900,000 and above. You know, you get too close to where you can afford and you begin to... But, you know, but it's always interesting as, you, as we exited one of those great big huge houses, invariably one of the first things we would say is something like, I didn't like the molding in the bathroom. <laughs> it's just like us, isn't it? Just like... We, we go and we see that which is beautifully done. And yet, our eye goes to that which... Just we don't like. And so in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of circumstances, it's so easy for us to be critical of God, to be judgmental of Him, to be critical of others, to be judgmental of them, to point the one thing out. And so he says, listen, if you want to live a life, if you're the God of peace, who's brought peace to you, then you need to be have a peaceful mind. That doesn't mean you run around with rose-colored glasses. We see all that which is ugly all the time and all that is a lie all the time. 
But he says, here's how you're to measure your thoughts and your evaluations of things. I want you to do it like this. And he says, so think about your thoughts. Are they true? Think true thoughts. Don't live a lie. There's no real peace in living a lie. When my children began school and so forth, we began to teach them that one of the most important things for students to learn is not to lie to yourself. Because the famous lie for every student is this. I know this material, so I don't need to study it anymore. Now, we say that to ourselves so we can go to bed at night. But you wake up, and it gives you a measure of peace. Oh, I know this. This is great. I can go to bed. Hoo-hoo. Get up the next day. The anxiety doesn't hit until about 10 minutes into the test. And you realize, I've been living a lie. I don't know this. And he says, no, no, you must think true thoughts. And it's very easy for us to have false thoughts, for instance, about God and our relationship to Him. There are times when we think, oh, it really doesn't matter how I live my life. God's forgiving. It really doesn't matter. I can think this, do this, say this. And there's no peace. Because that's not true. God really does care about what we think and what we say and what we do. And don't, so we shouldn't live the lie to say it really doesn't matter. There are other times when we think, oh, God could never, ever forgive me because of my sin, because of what I've said, because of what I thought, because of what I did. He could never forgive me. Therefore, I, I can't really pray to ask his forgiveness. I'll try to be good for about three days, and then I'll see how it's with God. That's a lie, too. There's no peace in the context of that. There's no peace until you come to God and say, Honestly, truthfully, I've sinned. Honestly, truthfully, I trust you that the work of Christ, the blood of Christ, is sufficient to cover all my sin. One of my favorite hymns has a line. It's a hymn called, um, By Grace I Am an Heir of Heaven. And the line in about the fourth verse is this. It says, I know my sin in all its greatness but also him who sets me free. You don't have to lie about your sin because you know the truth of Christ. We must live that truth. He says, whatever is true, think of true things. In the midst of difficulties, think of true things. One of the great things, and I hope you heard Anna Kulik say it, is that she knew the truth. She had the right tapes playing in her head, but she felt completely helpless and almost, if not completely, hopeless. But there's one other thing that she knew, and she knew that she belonged to God, and and thus she knew it was a matter of time, however painful and however long, a matter of time before he would rescue her, and he came to her. That's the truth. I often tell people in my office who are going through great difficulties, and I tell it to myself as well, that sometimes, you know, we're in the middle of our own psalm. Read through the psalms. They usually start out either really depressed or with some initial summary statement of praise, and then they become depressed. Right? Psalms are great for that. Sometimes there's just hymns of praise, but you know that really just didn't write the other part. And so sometimes when we find ourselves in about, we're in about verse 18 of our own psalm where we know 
God is great and he will deliver us. But yet right now, the best thing we can say about our faces, ourselves is what the psalmist might say, and that is that we are laid low in the dust. Right? But there's a sense that we know inexplicably surpasses understanding. We couldn't explain it to anybody else at the moment, but we know that a time will come when we'll write those last few verses that agree with that first summary statement that says, yes, God is great. To keep telling ourselves the truth and our thoughts need to be truthful. Quickly, whatever is, is honorable, that is dignified before God, I think one of the things that the, the uh, disciples didn't like about hanging around with Jesus is he could read your mind. Wouldn't you hate that? Uh, whatever is dignified. If, if, your, if your thoughts were laid out before God, would they, would they be honorable to him? Whatever is just, that is, whatever is righteous, whatever is right and pure and true, those are the kinds of things that we should be thinking of. Do we give God his due? Is it, is it right what we're thinking about him? Do we give other people their due? Is it right what we're thinking about them? Or are we putting them down? You see, are our thoughts righteous and just? Whatever is pure, or are our thoughts impure? Whatever is lovely, that is, whatever evokes from us love. Whatever is commendable, admirable. If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, our minds must be disciplined. The scripture says that we're to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. The scripture says that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We need to be disciplined in our thinking. And when you're going through difficulties, you need to ask yourself the question, am I thinking true thoughts about God? Am I thinking true thoughts about others? Am I thinking thoughts which are honorable? I love the great line in 1 Corinthians in chapter 2 where the apostle is, in, is writing to the church in Corinth, which was a mess. But you, and you can tell that he was grasping for something to say positive, to keep his mind so it wouldn't be so critical. And so he says, well, this I've determined to, to know about you, Christ and him crucified. That's the only thing that's, I'm going to be I'm going to think a commendable thought here, an honorable thought, that thought. And then he says, not only that, but your practice needs to, to be consistent with what you've learned from me, from what you've received and heard and seen in me. How have I lived my life? And we talked about this a few weeks ago, so we don't need to now. Where Paul says, imitate me. Imitate me in the context of the very fact that I know in thinking rightly, that my righteousness is dung, but Christ's righteousness is all sufficient. So don't hang on to your stuff. You've seen how I've lived. Live like that. If you hang on to your stuff, you'll be anxious and you'll never have enough stuff. And once you get a lot of stuff, you'll be afraid to lose it and so you'll be anxious. So just don't have stuff. And you'll be happy. I have to be honest. And I'm not ready to get rid of stuff yet, so I'm going to confess this. But everybody I know who's my age that went through poverty, relatively speaking, in our 20s, say that we had much less stress then. We also had much less stuff then. 
I think there's a real, there's, they're, they're related to each other. And the apostle says, you know, take the mind of Christ, be humble. Think like that. And then self-sacrificing love will follow. And he said, you know, I'm in prison for the sake of the gospel. But that's okay. Because I'm thinking correctly and I know the value of the gospel. And so I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes for the gospel to go out. So he said, whatever you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. It is a matter of praying. It is a matter of thinking. And it is a matter of doing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I trust that you are with us, you the very God of peace. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts, our minds, that you would guard them with your peace and in so doing, that you would give us discipline for our thoughts and that you would cause us to be obedient. And in the midst of all that, that we would live in peace with you, peace with each other, and peace within. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that elders are available to pray. Please take advantage of that. Spend a little time lingering and greeting, if you will, especially some folks you may not know. Some of you may be visiting, and I would urge you to introduce yourself to us and others. Introduce yourselves, if you've been here a while, to those you don't know. The response to the benediction is this. The God of peace is with me. That makes you happy. Say then, hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenants, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, the God of peace is with me.